I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and you're listening to Writers on Writing. My guest on today's show is poet Kim Dower. Kim has three previous collections of poetry published by Red Hen Press. She's also a book publicist in Los Angeles and teaches poetry workshops for UCLA Extension and Antioch University. She was West Hollywood Poet Laureate from 2016 to 2018. Her latest volume is I Wore This Dress for You, Mom, published by Red Hen. Kim and I talked about how poems begin, not getting an MFA, influences, and more. If you like what you hear and you feel you benefit from listening to the show, consider becoming a patron. Writers on Writing now has a Patreon page with various benefits depending on which tier you decide on. We've been doing this show for 24 years, amazingly. Whatever you feel you can contribute will greatly be appreciated by Marie and me. Now, let's bring on Kim. So, Kim, I love talking to you about your work, and I wanted to, and I don't know if we ever talked about your beginnings, um, your path to becoming a poet. At least we never talked about it in depth and not on the show. I wonder if you can, you can take us back to when, um, when you became a poet. When did it begin? Did it begin when you were a kid, when you were in high school? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for so many writers and poets, uh, these, uh, it has, it takes roots when you're young, but you don't know what those roots are, or what they mean, because you're just a kid. So uh, I would always write little things down, I was going to say jingles, and then I pulled back from that word, but, um, but they were kind of jingle-ish. I loved I loved being read to particularly, I love Dr. Seuss and I loved A.A. Milne. I still have my books, Now We Are Six and When We Were Very Young. And I had memorized all of those, their changing guard at Buckingham Palace, Christopher Robin went down with Alice and all, I loved the little rhyming stories. And I also loved listening to my grandmother who was Russian and uh, would recite Pushkin to me and all the great Russian poets. And I didn't know what she was talking about, but I knew it was beautiful and it was musical. And I think that when you grow up listening to classical music, you know, it's the same kind of a thing. You have a love for that sound and what the sound does for you. And poetry did that for me at a very young age without my knowing what, what it was. So, you know, I, I would write little poems. I wrote poems all through high school. Uh, they weren't good poems. They were, they were, I don't know what they were like, you know, like girls write in their journals and maybe boys, I don't know, but little autobiographical journal entry type things. But my first year of college, that's when my life changed um, forever. And I took an elective called Introduction to Creative Writing at the spring of my first year. Uh, 
and it would just happen to be taught by a poet named Thomas Lux, who is a very young man. This might've been the first or second class he ever taught. He went on, of course, to be a great poet. He's since passed away very sadly. But that was my introduction to creative writing poetry was Thomas Lux. And from the first day of that class and for the rest of my life, I was a poet because, mm. yeah. So you, you went on to become a book publicist, which entails a lot of writing, but I'm curious why you went that way instead of say getting a master's or an MFA um, in poetry. Yes, <laughs> I have a great answer for that question. Okay. I, I have a real answer for it. So I did four years at Emerson College. I was a creative writing. I got a BFA in creative writing. All I did was write poetry for four years. I had great teachers. I, I loved it. Um, and I actually got a full scholarship. I almost choke on it when I say it now, but to University of Iowa uh, and to UMass, both the writing programs. And um, I really didn't want to go to Iowa because it was far away and cold and I didn't know anybody. And, um, you know, and I wasn't, um, I've always gone by my gut. I'm not that much of a daredevil. So nah, that seems too far. I. And then UMass, I could have gone to, it was right there. But truth is that um, the head of the writing program who was a great mentor to me and then gave me a job teaching there said, you know, you can go to these programs and get your MFA and write like everybody else in those programs. Cause they sort of churn people out to write similarly. I mean, this was 40 years ago, so I don't know what's, what they do now. Um, or you can stay here and teach creative writing and be in the real world. And uh, I stayed and taught introduction to creative writing at Emerson for three years, lived in Boston. Uh, and then I moved to Los Angeles and my whole life changed once again. So that's my MFA story. Do you wish you had done it? No. No? I don't. You know, there there were there were times when I was getting back into poetry because I I was away from it for a while that I thought, why did you do this? You know, you could have gotten an MFA, you could be teaching today, you could be in that world. But fact is, you know, Barbara, you know me in my in my day job world uh, as a book publicist, and I've had a lot of fun doing this and met a lot of great people, and I was able to move around in different worlds and not just be an academia. And um, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful that my work as a publicist has given me the opportunity to go back to being a poet. And now they're sort of, well, not sort of, now they're very much joined. They have an equal weight in my life, although my heart obviously belongs to one much more than to the other, but they're both important. Yeah, it, it seems like, I mean, you know, there are so many MFA programs now, and they seem to only be increasing. And writers, so many writers I talk to feel like it's 
it has to be a decision. You know, it's like, should I do it? Do I have a better chance of being published? I, you know, all those kind of questions. And um, it's often the one of the questions is that I don't really hear is, is, is it going to make me a better writer? You know, um, it, it seems like MFAs work well for people who need community and, and all of that. But I don't know. I mean, I don't even know that they make a difference anymore. Well, I don't know either because I, I didn't go through that program, the program, but I, my hunch is the reason that they might make you a better writer is simply because you have more time to write and being a better writer, just like anything else takes as much practice and as much time as you can devote to it. Um, I mean, that's just a given, that's just the truth. If you write every single day, um, if you have a community of people you can discuss your work with, it's gonna make you stronger. It's gonna strengthen that muscle. So if you have two or three years to just be in school, well, how great is that? But what's gonna happen once you get out of the school? Uh, I don't know. You know, if you have your own voice and that voice is strong and, um, I'm not sure you need an MFA program to, to where to develop that voice. And I, you know, I've been in writing workshops for the last 15 years uh, in and out while I've been doing my regular life, my regular job, I would go every Saturday morning for, for years. I don't anymore, but I write every single day. I send poems to people whose opinion I um, pay attention to. And I have a writing community here, even though I'm not in an MFA program. Yeah. Well, speaking of voice, because you obviously have a voice, a strong voice. How did, how did it, how did you get that? Did you get that through writing? Did you get that through a combination of workshops and writing and listening to yourself and subject matter and themes you were interested in? Can you talk about voice? Yeah, I was going to make a really stupid joke and say that I got it on Amazon and I just I have a kit, how to get your voice. And I, I got a pink one. But, um, you know, I, that's that is the million dollar question, or I guess we should say the billion dollar question. How do you get your voice? How does it develop? When does it develop? Um, how do you keep it? How do you change it? Uh, you know, I think that I had a very similar voice in college. Uh, and, and the voice is a combination of in my imagination and my sense of humor and just observing everyday things. Um, there's usually humor in my poem, even if the poem is very sad. And that's because I think that's who I am. Um, I can almost make a joke out of out of everything, or at least see the humor in, in, well, not quite everything, but you know what I'm saying, a lot of things. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, there's that poem, one of my favorite poems of yours is the one, I'm looking for it, um, to your son. And yeah. I, I've talked about it before, that it's so poignant. What is it? What is the title? Is it Letter um, to My letter Son? To, yeah, Letter to My Son. Yeah. Do you want to read it? I can absolutely read it. It's um, 
it's a prose poem. I think it is the only prose poem in this book. So for listeners who don't know what that means, it just means there's no line breaks in this poem. It's written as prose. So it's one constant line without, uh, the, without, uh, without line breaks that you put in a poem. Um, and it's called Letter to My Son. Dementia runs in the family. So if I can't think of a name or a place, a moment everyone else can vividly recall, I feel afraid, useless, ashamed. You see, I don't want anyone to carry me into another room so I can get a view of a tree or remind me what a tree is or tell me what I'm sipping from is called a straw. I've seen it all before. My grandfather didn't know he was eating a banana, only that someone had to peel it for him and that thing, that peel, had to be thrown away. I'm not saying it's certain I will have dementia, but if I do, please know this. I won't be mad if you don't take care of me. I won't even know that you're not. Tell me everything's okay and I will believe you. Tell me there's a bird on a branch outside my window, even if there is no window. And I will imagine he's singing to me. Once when a storm was coming, my mother looked up at the sky, told me God was punching the clouds to make the rain pour out. She never even believed in God. The point is this, I may not know exactly who you are when you come to visit. I may be confused, but when I hold your hand, it will all come back in waves, rocking you in my arms when you were a baby, your little seltzer voice, my heart flooding my body with joy every morning you jumped on my bed. I will not be angry like some people with dementia can get. I have never been good at angry. I will not peel the yellow paper off the wall or bite my caregiver. Play a few rounds of blackjack with me. You deal. I will smile each time I get a picture card. Tell me I've hit 21 even if I bust. Use real chips. Have party drinks with ice that clinks. A cocktail napkin with which to dab my lips. Yeah, I love this. As you know, I think I had you read it another time on the show. And I... I, your, your humor and your, I don't know, charm is so present in this poem. Um, Thank you. Can you talk at all about writing it in terms of like how it began and then what you did with that beginning, that idea maybe, or the genesis of the poem? I, I can talk about it. Um, a lot of times, Barbara, I don't remember anything about how a poem comes to me or why or what, but uh, I do remember this. And this is one of those poems that I didn't really think was necessarily going to, to be a poem or a keeper or anything. But I had in my head, I, I, there's always some truth in my poems and some things that are completely made up. The truth is that dementia does run in my family. And the truth is that I'm scared sometimes when I can't remember something. And um, 
So I decided, I started with, with the title letter to my son because I wanted to write him a letter that he would find one day and know how to, how to deal with me. So it started as a real desire to write a real letter. So I, I, the first line came to me uh, in, in, in the real world. Let's call it the real world instead of the writing a poem world. So dementia runs in my family. So if I can't think of a name or place, a moment everyone else can vividly recall, I feel afraid, useless, ashamed. That was a statement. And then I kind of took off from there. I, this poem had many, many, many drafts. When I, when I knew that it was going to, that it wanted to be a poem, which means leave my life and go into other people's lives because that's what you're doing when you send these poems out. You're saying, I'm done with you now. Now this is for other people to respond to, connect with, enjoy. And you don't have a stake in it anymore. That's when, for me, it becomes uh, a poem and not a journal entry. So the, a lot of the, of the rest of the poem is either made up or I struggled. I remember struggling for imagery that would be true, but not necessarily autobiographical, all right? Um, I remember visiting my father in a nursing home and I remember he was eating a banana. And I remember that was a very upsetting image to me, but I don't know why. Mm -hmm. um, it just, I didn't like to see that image. And um, so I started with my father, my grandfather didn't know he's eating banana. That That's not, you know, not true. I, I made that up, but it felt right. Um, and I used to sit with my mother when she was at her nursing home at the, la the last year, and she just wanted to sit outside and look at the birds. So I, you know, I, I put the bird in. Um, the, the line about the storm coming and my mother looking at the sky and saying, God was punching the clouds to make the rain. That never happened. She never said that. But I thought it was uh, dramatic and possibly true. Um, you know, what, what we say a lot, and you know all of this, is that the facts, the details in a poem, the story, that none of that has to be true. The emotion has to be true. What has to be true and authentic are the emotions and the feelings that are conveyed, not necessarily how you convey them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And well, I, you know, something as you were talking, I was thinking about how um, readers often think poems are true to the poet. Right. Why do you think that is? I mean, we don't read novels and go, I wonder, you know, what this writer went through with this. I mean, we usually no. assume that it's fiction. Exactly. It's part of the, to me, the big problems of why people don't respond to poetry the way they do fiction. Or um, it's, it's become, well, I think the answer is because when it feels so personal, 
people believe it has to be true, it has to be autobiographical. That's just not the case. So if we if we read a murder mystery or any any book with violence, we don't think, oh, the author has committed murder. The author knows what it's like to slice a body up into a hundred pieces. We never think of anything like that. We are reading it for fiction to be taken away into another place, to be absorbed by the story. This should be the same as poetry, but people immediately think that must be true. And that's why, as you know, in a, in a poetry workshop, we are taught to say, the speaker in the poem, why does the speaker in the poem do thus and such, rather than why do you do thus and such in a poem? Because we have to remind ourselves, it's the speaker in the poem and not the poet. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's, it's, it's really kind of interesting. Um, you know, let, let's go into the book. I wore this dress today for you, mom. Talk about putting this collection together. So I have written four collections. This will be my fifth one. And again, going back to poetry, you know, you'll pick up a book of poetry and there's not really a theme. Usually there's not. So the poems are all different and all of my poems in the different books have been all over the place. The only thing that brings them together is that I wrote them. And this was uh, before the pandemic. I was thinking, uh, I was I had another 100, 150 poems that were new and I started putting them together. And I really thought, you know, I'll, I'll just, I'll tell you being, completely honest here is that I thought, wow, what would be really commercial, what people might want to buy in a book of poems is some kind of a theme. And a theme that has always worked throughout my work are poems I write about my mother or about being a mother. And those are also some of the poems that when the books get reviewed, people point out um, you've always loved Letter to My Son. That's a poem that's been anthologized four or five times. Um, the poems, the, my poems that resonate the most are on those subjects. So I thought it would be an interesting um, experiment to see how many poems I have about being a mother or motherhood in these four collections. And I pulled them all out and I had enough for their own book. And I had written another 10 or 20 so I just put it all together. And one of people's favorite poems of mine is a poem I wrote called I Wore This Dress Today for You, Mom. And I thought, gosh, what if I had a book called I Wore This Dress Today for You, Mom, with my poems on being a mother, having a mother, and the new poems, and made it a collection that was available for Mother's Day. I know. And what if it looked super fantastic and darling and lovely. And it all came true for me. I will say that um, Red Hen, Hen Press, my publisher, they created a package. Um, the cover of this book is extraordinary. And um, I just can't say how grateful I am to them for, for making it look the way it looks. And the poems are, for me, it's like my greatest hits. Mm. Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited about this book. You wanna read that one? I wore this dress today for you, mom. 
Sure. <laughs> I want to read that one. Um, I wore this dress today for you, Mom. Breezy, floral, dancing with color. Soft, silky, flows as I walk. Easter Sunday, and you always liked to get dressed. Go for brunch. Maybe there's a good movie playing somewhere. Wrong religion. We were not churchgoers, but New Yorkers who understood the value of a parade down Fifth Avenue, bonnets in lavender, powder blues, pinks, hues of spring, the hope it would bring. We had no religion, but we did have noodle kugel, grandparents, dads who could fix fans, reach the china on the top shelf, carve the turkey. That time has passed. You were the last to go, mom, and I still feel bad I never got dressed up for you like you wanted me to. I had things, things to do. But today in LA, hot the way you liked it, those little birds you loved to see flitting from tree to tree just saw one, a twig in its mouth, preparing a bed for its baby might still be an egg. I wish you were here. I've got a closet filled with dresses I need to show you. Mm, that's lovely. Talk about this one, talk about the form. It's, um, of course, people, our, our listeners can't see it, but, but uh, talk about putting this poem together. So um, the poem is in stanzas, three lines to a stanza. So um, the poem dan physically dances on the page and has a lot of air and room. Um, a poem for me, uh, a poem will tell me how it wants to look on the page while I'm, as I'm writing it, either a block form with no stanzas or um, tercets, two, two couplets, two lines. But this poem kind of dictated how it, it should look and where the line breaks should go. And this is a case where it is one of my most autobiographical poems. This is a true poem in that um, Easter Sunday, I grew up in New York City and it was usually still cold on Easter Sunday, but we had the big, the big Easter parade down Fifth Avenue and it was the day, and this was in the 50s and the 60s when women would come out with their finest suits and all kinds of pink and purple dresses and big hats. It was a spectacle and um, something that, that was really fun. And my mother would lay out little Easter clothes for me on the bed, um, you know, like the little, a little bunny and like a little pink dress and whatever. And I never really liked the things she got me to wear. Um, so it was Easter Sunday in LA, a million years later, she was already dead. And I looked in my closet and um, there was a dress in there that was really fun and colorful. And I put it on and I thought to myself, 
I'm wearing this dress today for you, mom. Mm -hmm. And I got really sad and really, really upset. And I missed her so much. And that feeling right there is one of the many feelings that will get me to sit down and write something. Often it, it could just be hearing a conversation and thinking something's funny that someone says and I write it down. Sometimes it's a magazine or a newspaper headline. Sometimes I see something on the street that absorbs my attention. But when it is a pull of true emotion that almost is overwhelming and a poem comes from that, it just kind of plops out in one one amazing moment. So this was it. I wore this dress today for you, mom. And I looked at my dress and I thought breezy floral dancing with color, soft, silky flows as I walk. It's Easter Sunday and you always like to get dressed. And all of this was true. Um, so the poem is comes from a very strong emotion of missing my mother on this holiday that now mean, meant nothing. My son was grown up and no more Easter egg hunts, certainly no more noodle kugel, certainly no more grandparents. Just another Sunday on the calendar that really had no special meaning. So I gave it the meaning again. So... Did you write it in one shot? Do you tend to rewrite your poems, you know, sort of get a draft out at once? Do they come out piecemeal? Take us through writing this poem or, or writing a writing day when you were focused on writing or, I mean, I'm asking you a bunch of things here. Are you writing, playing with poetry during breaks in your work, in your work day? You know, how does that go for you? All of that. I mean, there are days where I don't, nothing's happening and I'm just too busy to even have, um, have a space. But when a poem tugs at me, it doesn't matter what's going on. I will make room because it's insisting that it be written. It's saying, no, at least get this line down. Um, there are poems that start off with a bang and they fizzle out and I don't know what, what they are or where they're going and they'll sit. I have a, a desktop that looks like a train wreck and I have folders and one folder is poems and play. One poem is, one folder is called unfinished. Unfinished ones will probably um, never get complete. They're ones I've gone back to and just they're not working. Poems and play are, are poems that still have a lot of hope and life in them. But when a poem comes out in one piece, as this one did, uh, what happens next are just the revisions. The poem is there, the first line is there. Um, I got out of the poem with a strong ending, I, I, it's solid, but then all the work is in the middle. And that can take, you know, that can take 50 revisions and I, 
I've discovered a new way for myself to do it that I really, really like. Um, there's a poem, it, an unfinished poem for me is like a conversation in the middle um, or an argument with a really good friend and she had to get off the phone and you like had things to say still. And then you've got to remember what they were. And, uh, it, you know, a shopping list that is just not complete. So I will when I'm finished working on a poem for that amount of time, you know, whether it's an hour or two or three, okay, I've got to say goodbye to it for now. I'll do two things. One, print it out. So I have hard copy with me at all times throughout the day. And I will email it to myself so that I look at it on my phone and it has a different look. It looks professional because it's not my own. And I look at it with much more discerning eyes and I can see immediately what needs to happen with that poem, what word needs to come out, what's awkward. You read it aloud every time because each time you read a poem aloud, you hear what's wrong with it. Automatically, you hear what's wrong with it. And throughout the day, the revision is happening. No matter what else I'm doing, every hour I will go back to that poem on the page and on my phone, I'll read type it, I'll resend it to me. And that can go on for several days until it's, until it's right. How do you know when it's right? When there's nothing left to do or? Well, when, yeah, when you, I mean, this sounds so ridiculous, but it's almost as if the poem gets up and walks away says, I'm, I'm done with you. Um, you know, you can look back, like I, in just reading um, Letter to My Son, there was something I saw that I would have changed. What was that? I'm gonna get it, I'm gonna go to it. I, I, I just, um, when I was reading it, uh, my grandfather didn't know he was eating a banana, only that someone had to peel it for him and that thing that peel had to be thrown away. I would have put the word discarded. Mm -hmm. uh, and that peel had to be discarded. Mm. Um, now, there's the same amount of syllables thrown away and discarded, but thrown away seems more breezy and discarded is more serious and final. And I, I when I was reading it, I, I thought of that word. Hmm. So, I mean, we could sit with, with these poems for the rest of our lives and see things change. You know, there's a great poem, poet named Bill Knott, K-N-O-T-T, -T, long, long dead now, but an amazing poet. But he would, at a poetry reading, start editing his poems after they were in books. And if he signed a book for you, he'd cross words out and say, this should be this way and this should be that way, you know. He was a little nutty. Um, I wouldn't never do that. But so when do you know, I mean, when you've gone through every single word, every single line break, when you think, you know, the great book, Stephen Dobbins, best order, best words, best order. That's what they have to be, the best words in the best order. And when you think that you've done that, 
And this is a very musical poem. So when I read it aloud, it really, it, it, it's, it sounds musical. The beats sound right. I, I wouldn't change anything in this poem, um, but I must've gone over this poem, I don't know how many times. This was also in the days when I was going to writing workshop and the poem was gone over very carefully in that workshop. Um, a lot of people I, re I recall had, had different comments. Some of them I, I, I took very seriously, some of them I didn't. Um, and then you just know, you just know when it's finished. Yeah. And I love what you said though, it gets, it's sort of like it gets up and walks away. <laughs> it's yes, word with you. <laughs> Word with you. <laughs> what about um, as long as my mother keeps getting mail? It's on page seventy-eight. I wonder if you would read that one. Sure. A lot of my titles are also the first line of the poem, mm -hmm. and this is the case here. As long as my mother keeps getting mail. She's not really dead. Pink dot free delivery, new discover card, the Democratic Party. When something arrives for her in my box, which is where her mail has been forwarded, I open it, read it to her so she knows people are still inquiring. Better insurance, a chance to cast her vote, a letter from her secret love. It's still all happening without her. As long as my mother keeps getting mail, she is still alive. I reinstate her membership to AARP so they will send me a free insulated tote bag, which I will keep for me. Even alive, she never would have used it. Like to walk hands-free. She'll never know I stole it. She won't be mad because she's dead. I finally accepted the fact that some things aren't meant for the recipient, but for the interceptor the one in surgical gloves who sees the tumor, removes, buries it, the one who eliminates the unprotected truth. Yeah, what a, what a great poem. Talk about putting this one together and how this came to you. Did it come to you when you were looking at your mother's mail? Yeah, but I have to say that the last three lines like blew my mind. I don't remember writing them and I haven't read this poem in a long time. So I was really surprised when I was reading it. Yeah, it, it ends with a wallop. Um, yeah, well, it definitely started, um, my mother lived up the street from my office and um, we had the same mailman, my, my office mail and her mail. And when she passed away, I told him just bring my mail down the street here and I filled out the forms etc but so for a very long time it's it's 10 years now since my mother's been dead and I just um I just got something in the mail for her the other day as a matter of fact um for another discover card because those people <laughs> they don't they don't give up easy um so um but yeah, it it it. I would get the pink dot delivery and discover card, Democratic Party. That there there's true, 
And I, and I thought to myself, because I, I do kind of talk to myself and I thought, well, as long as I'm getting her mail, she's not really dead. And I ran upstairs to my computer and I started writing. Um, and, and those first few lines are pretty conversational. And then I, the poem really took a turn and I don't, I don't, I honestly, I don't remember writing that or how that happened or, I mean, but the interceptor, mm -hmm. it's not even a word I would use. <laughs> you didn't know how that happened. You, you come, you know, as Anne Sexton used to say, God, dictates her poems to her and they just go right through her. I mean, she really believed that, that God was give, telling her poems. And I understand, I, again, I, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual and I understand. I mean, sure, I'll believe there's a God because I, half the time, I don't know where those things are coming from. Mm -hmm. Which may be how it should be. I think it has to be. I think that you have to let go when people talk about being in the zone and being taken over by the moment and all of this, that that's what happens. Listen, um, it's a very, it, I would say metaphysical, but I don't really know what metaphysical means. So it would sound so pretentious and <laughs> stupid, but let's just use the word for fun. Cause it just sounds so fun. It's sort of <laughs> metaphysical writing a poem or writing anything, you know, you get into the mind of a character or you get into the zone of a poem and the poem, I do believe the poem moves you around. It kind of pushes you around, tells you what it wants. This poem had to come out brutal because it was just sort of walking along, easy going, not boring, but not really going far and then suddenly whoa mm -hmm. Mm. yeah well what about what about the couple next door i have a feeling is this the laguna beach poem on page 34 were you in laguna i was in laguna um you know i like it i love it that you that you pick this poem because um, it's a very quiet poem, but it's a poem that I loved writing and it has a different genesis than many of my other poems. Um, so as you know, I used to go to Laguna Beach for 10 days in the summer just to write. It was my special treat to myself and I stay in this funky place that um, had a debt, you know, had a balcony and I could watch the people next door. I mean, I'm not like a, you know, keeping Tom type of person, but I was fascinated, you know, the different people on the terrace next door, but these people in particular, because they were an older couple, they never spoke. They just sat all day reading, which is something you don't see very often. And I would observe them like I observed the surfers down in the water or the, or the birds or the dolphins. Like, what are they going to do next, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it, there wasn't a lot of hope with these people. But then there were certain subtle things that moved me to tears. 
So this poem is called The Couple Next Door. The couple next door reads all day long. I can see them from our adjoining hotel patios high above the sea. The couple next door sits at a round white plastic table on hard chairs, their books touching as they turn the pages at the same time. I listen for any sounds they might make, soft cough, sigh of joy, but I hear nothing except for southbound traffic on the Pacific Coast Highway, distant waves, morning sounds of housekeepers cleaning the grounds below our deck. The man's book looks fat. I can see him, thick glasses, brand new cap, staring intently into the page. I never see him smile, so I know the book is not funny. I never see him shake his head, so I know the book does not confuse him, but he suddenly lifts his head, looks out at the ocean, puts his hand over his mouth. The woman looks content, like her book understands her. It's about something she knows too well, bringing up children, watching them grow, saying goodbye. I brought books too, but prefer watching them. Wonder how they arrived at this place where reading in silence carries them through the day. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I love this poem and that last line too. You talk about ending a poem, you know? I mean, that, that a lot has to happen there, right? A lot has to happen. You know, Stephen Dunn, who was a great friend, a great, one of our greatest poets ever. Yes. Stephen Dunn, D-U-N-N. You should all read him, look him up. Um, he once said to me, the hardest part about writing a poem is getting out of the poem. Mm. And that's what he called it, getting out of the poem. Because, um, you know, you, you, you don't want to tie it up with a, a little bow. You don't want to leave it too open-ended. You don't want to be too mysterious without any grounding. You don't want to be flat. You know, the first line to lead you in and the last line to get you out. Those are the, the, the trickiest, hardest parts. For me, the first line is the easiest. The last line is impossible until you land it. Mm. You know, it's, it's funny. Besides you, Stephen Dunn has been on the show. He was on the show maybe three uh, times, you know, three times. And, and I love that he didn't have an MFA either. <laughs> No, I'll tell you, you know, why I loved Stephen Dunn so much and why we were such good friends is because he too, he was not, I mean, he did teach for years and years, but he started as, he was in marketing. He, I think he wrote slogans for Procter & Gamble or one of those things, you know, back in the 50s and 60s. He was in advertising. He was a professional um tennis player he was a poker player I mean he did a lot of things he had a lot of interests 
<clears throat> so he wasn't sequestered in a university his whole life. Um, he started writing poetry later. Um, I mean, not too late, but he did other things and had other professions. Yeah, and there's a lot of value in that. You know, I think um, having a life apart from academia, you know? I, I really agree. I, I, um, I don't, I think I would have been miserable. I, I mean, I love to teach and I do teach. Um, tomorrow I'm teaching a whole, a nine to five workshop for UCLA Extension. Um, and that'll be a great day. It'll be very energizing for me. It'll, um, but, you know, it's sort of like, I guess, taking care of grandchildren. I mean, you have them for a while and you can give them back. I, I don't, you know, have students that I feel responsible for day in and day out. I think that would be a huge, for me, uh, um, uh, it would worry me. You know, am I saying the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Am I pointing them in the right direction? <clears throat> I don't know. We're, we're drawing to the end of our time. I'm curious if um, you ever hit a wall and, and what you do, or do you go to poets you love for inspiration? Do you go for a walk? What do you do? You mean if I hit a wall and I'm writing a poem? Yeah, or when you, you know, maybe maybe you have a day where you, that's all you have to do and you're, you're just, it's just not coming as you would like. Yeah, I mean, all the time. Um, <clears throat> I think that, uh, you know, one of the misconceptions, I mean, there are people who say you have to sit down and write every day. Um, it's probably more true if you're writing a novel, you got to get those pages going and keep the continuity. But for a, po for a poet, for me, I, I do write every day, but not because out of obligation to myself to do so, it's because I want to do it. I think a poem needs, is a calling. And, and I don't mean that in a, in a high sense at all. Uh, what I mean is a poem will call to you, write this. You know, I see something, it calls to me. Um, again, you know, something suddenly makes me laugh or, um, I feel compelled to, to write about it, but I don't force it. I do not force myself to sit down and write a poem because it's not gonna happen. Um, I get stuck a lot in the middle of a poem. Suddenly it's going nowhere. And it's very frustrating, it's like a puzzle. I'll keep going back to it until it wears me out. And then I guess that's the wall I hit that you refer to and the wall is, there's no poem here. Um, but because of computers, <clears throat> it's not taking up any space. Uh, I just put it in my poems and play. And then maybe a month or two later, I'll go back to it and I'll think, what was I thinking? This is not happening. Or I'll suddenly get it. Yeah, this is where the poem wants to go, or this is what I, I want to say. So they're the ones that come out in a flow. They're the ones that I hit a wall. Um, and I, just like there are all kinds of poems, there's all kinds of ways that I approach writing a poem. 
Um, but I'm probably best with that first thought, best thought, even though I revise a lot. But if something inspires me or, or I think it's interesting enough to write about, chances are it's gonna work as a poem. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you pretty much work with everything that you get down to begin with? I mean, are there, are there poems you, you know, you write a few lines to, a few stanzas to and throw out? Will you throw poems out? Yeah. Yeah, I throw them out all the time. I mean, I throw them out all the time and I, maybe I shouldn't be throwing so much out, but I sometimes get overwhelmed. I have so much stuff and so many lines and so many different places and so many things printed out um, that I, I, I just throw them out. You know, I also believe, and all these, all these things I believe are, you know, probably none of them are true, but I, I believe that if a poem really wants to be written, if those lines were meant to be written, they will come back to me. And I, that has happened. Like I've thrown something out and a few months later, I think of it again. So it almost insists on it, but listen, you know, as we get older, um, and the dementia thing, I mean, I certainly don't have dementia, but <clears throat> I am forgetful. And so now if I have an idea or there's something I want to write, I had better write it down fast because I'm not going to remember it. I remember that Ruth Stone story about um, her feeling a poem was coming. And so she'd run across the field Get it, trying to get back to her desk before it passed over and went to somebody else. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love her. Yeah. And I, I love that idea. I really feel like that that's a perfect way to put it. Um, they are like little kites sometimes and it, you're holding onto it and you've got it. And then suddenly you just see it disappear into the sky. And I, you know, you, you've got to, you've got to write, write it down. Um, so that's what I try to do. So Kim, any advice for the poets who are listening or maybe the writers who are writing in another genre who are thinking about poetry or wanting, what, wondering what to do, how to go about it? The best thing to do, honestly, and you will surprise yourself, you will shock yourself, is to do what, you know, the surrealists used to call automatic writing. A lot of people call it fever writing. Some people call it wild writing. And what it is, is writing without thinking, without lifting your pen or, or lifting your fingers from computer screen. Just, you can put on a timer for three minutes, five minutes, seven minutes. You can close your eyes give yourself a prompt or, or not, and just go. And at the end of that time, it's almost like, oh my God, like you've discovered a gold mine, like a fortune. There might be a title or a line or wow. And I do this in classes with prompts. You know, I read, I choose a poem that we all read, a poem, someone else's poem. And I say, answer that poem and just don't think automatic writing. And people come up with such imaginative, beautiful things without thinking. 
And then of course, you know, you have to choose what to use and how to move it around. But, um, you know, Erica Jong says always that poetry is like dancing. And um, I love that. It is like dancing and it's, it's very, it's creative, inventive, and it should be fun. You know, the hard work comes then when you're editing it and choosing what word and does it, you know, and, uh, but getting it down on paper should be fun. Mm. Stephen Dunn would not agree with that. And if he were around today, I would say, what would you say to that? And he would say, that's not true. <laughs> because, you know, we had that conversation. And, um, but that's okay. You know, as my other mentor, Thomas Lux would say, a poem is a built thing. It's a built thing. It doesn't come from inspiration. It doesn't come from the gods. He would say to Anne Sexton, be quiet. It comes, you build it. Yeah. You build it and you go to work and you build it. Eh, let them say what they want. For me, it's fun. And, and then I build it or tear it down. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for being here again. Thank you, Barbara. It's always fun. That was Kim Dower, author of I Wore This Dress For You, Mom, published by Red Hen Press. If you want to know more about the show, please visit penonfire.com. And consider being a patron by visiting our Patreon page. Any amount will help us to continue doing what we do here every week. And you writers out there, remember, Stay in the chair. Thanks for listening.